0: The and Golf Network is proudly supported by The Golf Society, shop designer golf apparel, shoes and accessories from the world's most exclusive and best golf brands. Online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talkin' Golf.
1: I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew and I still have a rich full left but the last tee shot I hit was more like it that one in the playoff against Barton and Ray that's right and the best thing to win the Masters you, you will be here forever as long as you are still alive so that's the best thing I'm
0: very happy Welcome to episode 23 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Today on the show, we're going to talk to one of the foremost experts of pre 1930 golf clubs in the world, the man who literally wrote the book on the subject and another 18 books after that. If you have ever wondered how much a hickory shafted club is worth, or you're a collector of ancient clubs, Pete Georgity is a name you must know. Today on our podcast, we dive into Pete's recollections of tracking and cataloging ancient golf clubs from across the world and the founding of the most unique golf tournament in the world. Pete Georgity grew up on the municipal golf courses of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He did his postgraduate work at Dundee University in Scotland and was a regular on the links of St. Andrews, all while absorbing this game's great history. One day on those sacred links, a fellow Scot, gave Pete a hickory-shafted club, and as they say, the rest is history. Pete has written 19 books on the history of golf equipment. He has also contributed to most mainstream golf publications, as well as the U.S. Open program. He currently sits on the USGA Museum Committee and is a member of the Golf Writers Association and is currently the Executive Director of the Golf Heritage Society. In 1998, Pete started the National Hickory Championship, and in 2020, it will celebrate its 23rd year. Pete formally serves as the championship director, but informally, we call him the czar. Pete, thank you so much for joining us on the 23rd episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. I'm glad to be here, Connor. Thanks for having me. Now, Pete, I have a two-part question and a little bit in jest two parts. Are you the Indiana Jones of the golf collecting world? And two, were you or are you the golf club archaeologist or perhaps genealogist of golf? Probably neither,
1: (laughs) but I'm flattered.
0: Yeah, I I had to ask that. I mean, you're well known within the golf trading world. um, And I I just, I find it fascinating, your, your books that you kicked off with. Now, in, our, in my intro, I mentioned that a friend and a fellow Scotsman uh, gave you your first Hickory Golf Club in Scotland. What was it, and how did that set you on your 19-book journey? Well, it was a Braid Mills 1915 aluminum
1: head putter from Standard Golf. Pretty common club, but you know I had never seen one. Probably a lot of people in America had never seen one. And I was fascinated by the wood, the leather grip, the, just the whole aura of of that club and started going out to flea markets and that sort of thing and collecting clubs. And pretty soon I had 150 clubs stacked
0: up in the apartment and, and uh, I was out of control. So how long did it take you to catalog all those clubs? You know, going back as far as you did, I mean, going back to some of the earliest clubs out there and ending in the popularization of the steel shafted irons, like how long... I mean, how does one even start that process? That's uh, it's a good question. It's just, I guess it's a disease.
1: You just, you do a little at a time and you keep going and going and it snowballs. And pretty soon, uh, you know, the, the first book I wrote, Connor, was was the Compendium of British Clubmakers. And I had 12 years worth of research in that. So that kind of gives you a clue that before I got into the book phase, I had collected for a long time. I had gone to meetings.
0: I had done a lot of research. And and it just all accumulated. What what was out there, and like uh, from a book perspective, from a guide perspective, before you kicked out, you know, your first edition of your golf club guide, was there anything on the market that you used for reference material? I mean, obviously you had reference material, but from a guideline, from a pricing standpoint, I mean, I just can't imagine how daunting that was.
1: The the pricing um, came from going to shows and and you know w- watching what people bought and sold and how much they did and all that sort of thing. So it was more of a um, investigative uh, from meeting standpoint um, uh, accumulation of knowledge. There was only one book that was worth its salt when I started collecting, and that was um, David Sturck and Ian Henderson's Golf in the Making. And that was kind of our Bible. All us early collectors, we used that. There were no prices in there. But that's where we got a lot of our information. There were a bunch of little paperback type books and, and just people listing their clubs and doing stuff like that. So I really had very little to go on. I got all my knowledge from going to the various golf libraries at USGA, at the World Golf Hall of Fame um those places and using the reference books that they had and that's that's how I really started accumulating the information I used to put in my
0: books on your pricing guides uh I know you you published several editions of those are you still publishing those by chance Yeah I'm working on ninth edition right now You are okay when was the one when was the last one published
1: um I think it was uh, 2013 it's been out of print for about a year. I'm just so busy I haven't been able to crank another one out, but uh, but I'm working on it.
0: So, when you're you're going through this, uh, how did you discover those clubs that you weren't seeing at the shows? Obviously, there are, there are some very rare clubs in some of those the guideline books that I, I you know, I can't imagine you saw all of them as you were traveling around shows or even going through the the USGA or RNA RNA archives. How did you stumble across those?
1: You know there were a lot of golf auctions in the nineties and and they had a lot of top flight equipment there. I took a lot of pictures my my photo files of clubs um, number between fourteen and fifteen thousand pictures Wow um, yeah, a lot of it was was um, paper paper photographs you know from the pre digital days and I finally digitized them, scanned all those images, but um, I started using digital cameras in about the year two thousand. And so that's easy. You can you can take a lot of pictures with digital camera.
0: Let me ask you this: I mean, we're uh, the last one. Did you say 2013 was yes. published? Yep. Does anything surprise you anymore? I mean, do you still run across clubs that you've never even heard about?
1: Of course, of course. Every every month. Every month, really? That often? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you know, you look in the auctions, the auction catalogs. You look on eBay. Um, there's always stuff. It, it may not be valuable stuff, but it's going to be different. It's going to be something that you didn't see before or some variation. Um, it, you know, that's, that's the great thing about collecting clubs is that um, you'll never get everything and you'll never see everything, but uh, there's always a surprise out there. And for the specialist, um, that's especially uh, rewarding when you see something that you've never seen before that might fit in your collection.
0: Yeah, I I tell people, so I get asked quite often, you know, how much is this club worth? And before someone even shows me the club, I I kind of uh, recite this diatribe, if you will, where I say, listen, there's a lot more Fords than there are Ferraris in the world. Uh, and, And I think a lot of people think when they see a hickory shafted club, they automatically assume it's worth hundreds of dollars. I was wondering maybe if you could dive into that a little bit.
1: Well, you know, the, the, the whole premise of my, my value guide book is that it is a value guide, not a price book. Absolutely. And and I, the real intent for that book is for the guy that's a flea market picker or, or a novice collector or somebody that doesn't know you know quite as much as, as they'd like to know about old golf clubs, um, it, it kind of divides clubs up from the $50 level to the $200 level to the $2,000 level. And that's really what you need to know: is is this a common club? Is this a pretty cool club, or is this a real valuable club?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that I, I wonder. Let I me mean, let me spin off this question. Do you find it's harder to give somebody a guide on golf clubs now? Maybe it's easier, but I'm I'm curious because uh, you know when you first started on this adventure of of you know putting a putting out a guide, it was basically trade shows. So there's really like. Maybe one, maybe two sources of you know if you had a big auction. Uh, but although in the early days, a lot of clubs were just being overlooked for their value. So like now, is it easier to do a guide, or is it harder with all the information and different source material and all that out in the market?
1: It's really no no more difficult now than it was before. Um, obviously, you know every time I do a new edition. Sometimes I take things out, uh, but generally I try and add as much as I can to each edition so that uh, you know the the volume grows and there are more uh, more listings in there so that people are are happy when they find stuff that they uh, locate in a in a show or a market. Um, it's it really hasn't changed much. Um, unfortunately, when people see stuff on eBay, for instance, there are people that value things completely wrong on eBay, and and somebody will see that and I'll say, oh my God, he's got this club for four hundred dollars. Well, that's a forty dollar club. He just didn't know it. Um, so that there, you know, there there are those those false trails out there, and 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 you know, at the end of the day, it's only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And if somebody thinks it's a $400 club, they'll pay $400 and the rest of us will say, oh, (laughs) that was a $40 club.
0: Yeah. You know, and sometimes uh, scarcity is just what we think it is, right? I mean, it's just like market contributions. But I I think of when I first started collecting clubs, this is over a decade ago, I remember how hard we thought it was to find a Hagen concave sandwich, And the price of those things was, you know, $500 and up in some cases. Nowadays, you can find them out there, and you can get them for half that price, uh, because all of a sudden, everyone thought, "Oh, they're worth a lot." It, they kind of flooded the market; it became kind of demand, uh, you know, situated the price, and it came down. Well, initially, they were unusual clubs, and when when
1: when the reputation got out there, you know, anti Shank clubs uh, another is another example. Um, for a while, they were selling very high because people thought they were very rare. Well, if you get the word out, they're going to come out of the woodwork, and, uh, and then the price uh, will, will settle back to reality. And the Hagen and the Schenectady Putter are, are two other examples that they have a checkered past. They're, they're, uh, they're banned clubs, so they have a reputation, and everybody's got to have one just because they were banned and they've got a story behind them. But
0: there are probably
1: more of them than, than we think there are.
0: Yeah. I mean they're, they're I I agree. I think they're fascinating clubs. I think everybody who has a golf collection should have clubs just like that, if only to tell your buddies the story behind the nineteen thirty one ban of those clubs. Exactly. Right?
1: exactly. They're talking points.
0: Yeah. And I'll tell you on a personal note, Pete, I don't know what I would have done without you. I, I mean I used your book probably in the most inappropriate way, perhaps. I used it as a shopping list. <laughs> in my mind, I and and this is, you know, over a decade ago, but in my mind, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted in my collection, I couldn't think of, and I still can't. By the way, I, I still have the first book I bought from you, and several editions after that. Where I, I just wanted to know, okay, well, if I am going to have a, a a Gibson, you know, what else is out there? If I am going to have a, a Tom Stewart, you know, what else is out there? What else is out there other than Tom Stewart that I've never heard of? Not to mention, you know, the the pre you know uh, Haskell Ball era. And your guides on that. It's just unbelievable. Well, I Connor, you bring up an interesting point. I never thought of the
1: value guide as being the Sears catalog. So yeah, uh, I know right?
0: the, the wish book. But it was uh, a wish book. Bu- I mean, but I should take made off- a valid point. When yeah. I publish this, I'll put out photos of the first one I, I'm I'm a hundred percent sure I have circles on things that I wanted. It was like a sure. Christmas list for me. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So let me ask you this a personal question. Um what are your favorite clubs from the Hickory era and why? Well, you know, I've been doing this, I've been collecting for
1: about 45 years, Connor. And, and I've gone through a lot of iterations in my collection and changed direction several times and, and that sort of thing. And now I'm, I'm to the point where I'm, I'm trying to reduce my volume and have maybe hundred or 120 really, really nice clubs that I like. And my personal You know, my personal uh, um, uh, favorites are old irons and, you know, irons from before 1880. And that's really what I'm looking for now.
0: I love that. Let's go to the club collector there or some let's let's talk about maybe somebody who's starting off in the in the golf club world, like they're trying to how how would you recommend and it's only it's going to be personal taste, but how would you recommend, you know, somebody's getting your your guide, they're taking a look at it. Um, what advice would you give somebody to building a collection?
1: Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to go to the Gulf heritage meetings, the trade shows and see what's out there. You know, you gotta, yeah, you can buy a book and you can look at pictures, but that, that doesn't, uh, it doesn't match going and actually handling clubs and seeing them, seeing the markings and talking about them. Um, So the first thing is you got to look and and see what's out there. The second thing is you need to know a little about history. You need to know about band clubs and those clubs that, um, you know, change the course of golf history and and that sort of thing and and decide um, whether any of those are the sorts of things that you'd like to tell your friends about, have hanging on the wall of your house, whatever. And then the third thing is it's a budgetary thing. You know, are you going to collect $20, 30 $50 Twenty, thirty, fifty-dollar clubs. Do you have the wherewithal to, to spend several hundred on a club, or even several thousand? And, and that will help also focus you on what what you
0: collect and how you accumulate. I agree hundred percent. I, I tell people when they when they're first starting off, try to be as specific as you can because as a new collector, I just remember, and you probably did the same thing, Pete. But you just grab like everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no rhyme or reason. And then what you realize, I think you alluded to this, and I'll have you expand upon it, but what you realize as you become a more mature collector, as your collection grows, that you don't want a bunch of random things. You want, as I like to tell people, a story to tell, something that identifies this piece but connects with another, uh, whether it be through the history or the player that used it or, you know, an era. Right. Exactly. So let me ask you this. So, you know, you kind of alluded to this before, you brought it up, um, course correction, you, had, you know, your, your growing collection, what, from your experience, what causes a collector of golf clubs to do a course correction in their, in their current collection? The more
1: you see, the more avenues you find to, to, to go down. The more you learn, the more avenues you find to go down. And, uh, um, it's just, it's, it's accumulated knowledge is, is what it amounts to. Yeah.
0: So I'm going to ask you something here, and I I don't know if you're going to remember it. I know you're going to be able to handle the question though, but you may not remember this, but you once shared with me your thoughts of the most important golf club inventions of all time. I was wondering if you might touch on some of those for our audience. A lot of those. Uh, real important clubs in golf, in the
1: history of golf equipment, especially in the history of golf, are enumerated in my book, Collecting Antique Golf Clubs. The stories of like the um, uh, shankless irons, the anti-shank irons, the Schenectady putter, um, uh, uh, the Cran clique, the clubs that that uh, collectors flock to. There are stories behind them and, and those are all enumerated in, in my book Collecting Antique Golf Clubs, which is kind of a textbook for young and intermediate collectors to, to read, understand um, what the history of the clubs were, what, what materials were used, um, when uh, the different uh, techniques uh, 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 construction techniques were used and when you know when clubs went out of out of popularity, when they came into popularity that sort of thing um, that's you know that's that's a good start is, is to understand that that stuff and and in one of my value guides i i highlighted the 100 most what i thought were 100 most popular collectible clubs now, it might be it might have been the sixth edition of the seventh edition, Connor. So maybe you go back. and yeah, look, look. Yeah, I looked absolutely. But I had highlighted um, and and I had even noted them. I, I, I picked out a hundred that I thought were were the most collectible that that most collectors uh, strive to to try and get in their
0: collection. Now were they obtainable? I mean, because obviously everyone would like a Hugh Philp club.
1: Well. That's right, and you have to put that in there. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And believe it or not, you, you know, sometimes they, a philp is is attainable. It might have a lot of wormholes in it, might have been mucked up a little bit, but the stamp still says H-Philp on it. You have to be broad, broad-based. I mean, there are $50 clubs, there are $100 clubs, there are $500 clubs in that selection. And it's not that you have to have all of those, but that guide may help you you know, um, choose what avenue you want
0: to go down in your collection. Absolutely. You know, you once told me, I'm pretty sure you told me once that one of the most important inventions in the game of golf was Willie Park's bent neck putter. Was that you that told me that? Oh, well, certainly. I mean, that's that's one of these those maybe top 10 or top 20 historic clubs. Yeah. Can you give, give the, the folks who don't know about that putter, maybe just give them an idea of why a bent neck putter maybe describe what what he did and why its value not not in a in from a, a pricing guide standpoint but the value to the game of golf and how we see it today from that invention
1: well it, you know to start with he invented that club and and popularized it by using it in the British Open okay and and was very successful using it in the British Open and that of course caused you know, a claim it caused a lot of interest um but the thing is everybody copied it even though he patented it everybody copied it and and now you know a bent hosel putter a, a bent neck putter where the blade is behind the, the line of the shaft um is is pretty much the way all clubs are made um it got your hands in front of the ball and uh and that that helped Accuracy and speed, and, and just success in putting. So, that linked with the fact that he wrote the book, The Art of Putting, um, really kind of cast the spotlight on him. Uh, but he was, you know, that was the first, and everybody copied him, and uh, and that's what makes it uh, kind of exciting.
0: Yeah, it is, right? I mean, I just, I love that invention because it's a fairly simple one. I mean, if you have a bent neck putter, you see it, there's a little bend of the neck, and then you pick up your. Scotty Cameron or your ping putter or whatever. And here we have the, you know, it's not bent neck anymore, but it's a—it's definitely the same concept of getting your hands forward. Do you know how that, uh, that club uh, came to be? No, I would love you to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: legend has it, and we've never really gotten any proof on this, but legend has it that he had a regular old blade putter and it had fallen and a large horse, horse cart wagon wheel rolled over it and oh. bent the neck. Really? Picked it up, took it out, tried to use it. It worked. He patented it, and he
0: sold millions. I love it. Right? And then everyone copied him. And, and then you have it copied. on your putter today, folks. That's correct. Right? Yep. So, so I, I know you must have had some, but what are some of the major wow moments you've had when you've been searching for clubs? Like go way back to the beginning. Like, did you ever have any moments where you know it just kind of blew your mind away? What you found, what you saw, what you experienced?
1: I don't. I don't think so. I, I don't think there were any moments like that um, where you know I was at a flea market and I found a thousand dollar club or anything like that. I, you know, I've been lucky and I found things. And and I think what 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 I find more memorable is when I go to one of the trade meetings and I'm looking at clubs on somebody else's table and I find something and uh you know it may be marked a hundred dollars and I'll say well what do you take for it and and they'll say well we'll we'll take 80 or whatever and I'll, I'll pay them and then they come back to me and they say why did you buy that club Pete Pete, why did you buy that club? What was I missing? <laughs> you know, and and did I have it priced right? And uh, and, and, I'll laugh and and i will laugh. And I I remember one specific time. And and uh, I bought a club from a guy, and he was just he was so concerned that he was selling me a club at at what was a bargain price, and he should have been asking more and all that sort of thing. And he said, "Okay, tell me what. Why did you buy that club?" And I said. I bought it because I'm going to play with it.
0: Yeah. And sometimes those, for Hickory golfers, those are the most valuable ones, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. Maybe you could speak to this, Pete, because you know as much as anybody. So maybe you could speak to the camaraderie, um, and I I'm, it's, this is going to be kind of two parts, of the Hickory golfing community and then the collecting community, the GCS events, the Hickory golf events. Maybe you could talk about the folks and their common bond and how that brings them together.
1: You know, it's really just an extension of, of the golfer's bond. You know, we, we golfers have friends that are golfers and, and we kind of rank them maybe a little more special than just other friends, that sort of thing. And then of course you take it one step further and you say, well, these guys aren't just golfers. They're Hickory golfers, you know, which is kind of like uh, the next plateau up in, in terms of, uh, uh, deity and and uh, I, you know people ask me about that and and like I said I've been I, I've been in the society for 41 years. If I had to guess, I'd say that maybe six or seven of my top 10 friends are GHS members or Hickory golfers. We just we we get along. We have a common bond. We we communicate with each other about what we find, where we played, what we're doing, what we read, that sort of thing. It's just—it's um, uh, like minds.
0: Yeah, and I'll say this to people out there that maybe they collect and they're not part of the GCA. Um, one of the things that I would recommend is getting being a part of it. And, I, and, and reasoning is it's kind of twofold. First of all, you meet a bunch of great people that are like-minded. But second of that is there are people out there that literally go out of their way to help you. I mean, that was one of the things that really astounded me. I was looking to put together a couple of sets and, you know, one of your collecting buddies calls another collecting buddy and it's almost exponential until you find the thing you were looking for. It's unbelievable.
1: Sure. sure. No, it's, and, you know, as, as our friendships develop, we know what our friends collect. And if you find something that you're not interested in, but, you know, Joe down the street might, might be interested in, you let him know about it. And, uh, People p- p- people bring me stuff because they know I want it. I bring them stuff, or at least I tell them where it is, and uh, and that's part
0: of the fun of just collecting anything, really. Yeah, and the and the whole trading atmosphere, right? Yep. Like I've got something you've you want, and I've got you've got something I <laughs> want, right? There's yeah. a great dynamic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I would guess out of, actually out of my collection, I would guess the things I've had over the years, I probably fifty percent of them I've sold. And most of the time, I literally had no interest in selling because I wanted to trade it for something else. Sure. You know, and you knew who had your stuff. You, know? yep. <laughs> you oh, knew yeah. who had sure. that club that you really wanted, and you had to sure. find something he wanted too, or she. Sure, yep. So on top of your amazing golf guides and all of your books um, that you've done for golf collectors, you founded one of the most unique and perhaps under-the-radar golf tournaments in the world. Reviving an era that has been dead for over 100 years. Can you tell our audience what is and how you came up with the National Hickory Championship? Easy story. Um, you know, it all all goes back to uh,
1: Mr. Lewis Keller and uh, him developing the Oakhurst Golf Links from a course that was used in the 1880s, a little cow pasture type course. And making it a, a living museum. And I had written two stories about Oakhurst, one for Golf Journal and one for um, golf, uh, golf Illustrated. And when I was there the second time doing the story, Lewis and I were out playing golf, and it was only the two of us on the course, and we played nine holes. It took us about three hours because we'd walk and we'd talk, and then we'd hit the ball and we'd talk some more and we'd walk a little more. and. It was on the eighth hole, and you know what, what that hole looks like, uh, Connor. Um, I turned to Lewis and I said, why can't we have a tournament here? And he said, well, yeah, we should, and that's, that's how it started. And a year later, we had the first National Hickory Championship. Now, the basis for that was that I knew all these guys that were collectors, and a lot of them had longhead woods. And you know what the price range is on those. It's maybe I've broken a couple and I've cried over it. Oh I know. Yeah, you're you're legend in in, in that (laughs) department. But um we had those clubs in our collection and while we went out and played hickory golf, we never used those clubs because they were too valuable and too brittle. Only the stupid people do that, Pete. Well yeah, we we won't we won't mention any names, okay? But uh, Lewis had uh, all these replica clubs made, and I seized on that idea, and and the the whole basis for the National Hickory was, come on out, play at Oakhurst, and you'll have a chance to actually play golf with gutty-type balls and long-headed woods and smooth-faced irons. And instead of breaking your own clubs in your collection, you're going to play with replicas, and you'll you'll get the aura of
0: 19th century golf. And that's really how it started. So yeah, walk walk folks through. So we're we're talking about a gutty era tournament. What does that mean? Like for the modern golfer out there who's using titanium drivers and you know, a perimeter limit lim, or perimeter perimeter weighted irons. Sorry about that, folks. Yeah. Uh, what uh, what does a gutty tournament entail from an equipment standpoint? Well, the,
1: the gutta percha ball was the last um, iteration of balls
0: before the rubber
1: rubber wound ball, and for a lot of the older listeners. You remember when a cover came off a golf ball? It was nothing but rubber bands wound around each other. Now it's all solid, solid uh, two-piece balls. But um, the, the gutta percha ball was a ball that was made out of tree sap and uh, from Indonesia, and it was waterproof and it was um, it was a, like a rock. But it it really revolutionized the golf business because it it was a less priced ball than than the feather ball and made golf affordable to more people. Anyway. That's what we play. We play with simulated gutta-percha balls. Um, There are a couple of people that make them, um, and uh, we use those, and we use clubs that have to be attributable to manufacture before the year 1900, which is a completely different type of club than a lot of hickory tournaments use. The kind that Bobby Jones used uh, are fairly modern in their design, and the 19th century clubs are a lot more primitive, the sweet spot is very small on them. When you miss hit a shot, you know you miss hit it. Um, it's 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 a tough game, and you know golf is tough to begin with. But playing gutty golf with with 19th century equipment and 19th century rules makes it even tougher. But for a certain segment of the population, they love it. It's more fun than playing regular golf. And uh, and now are besides the National Hickory Championship, there are three or four other gutty ball tournaments going on in america and uh, there's a there's a whole tour that you know
0: guys will go to all five in in one year absolutely but it all started with the national hickory championship
1: that is correct and not only that but it was the first two-day tournament oh i didn't know that yep. i did not know and that we had played we had played wood shaft golf for many years before that but it was basically an 18 hole event we come out for the day we play golf we drink beer and then we go home and when I started the National Hickory and made it a two-day tournament with a with a, a third day for practice, the guys actually said, you mean we got to stay overnight? <laughs> in West
0: Virginia, <laughs> in, to be fair.
1: In West Virginia, right. And, and now, of course, all the major events
0: are, are two-day events. Absolutely. So when we first started, or when you first started playing Gutta Percha, the ball was almost more of a putty ball, right? It was a softer version of the gutty. Well, the, fir- the first balls that we used at Oakhurst were made by uh, Penfold,
1: and um, and they um, they they were rubber. You know, they were two piece rubber. And then we got some that were a little bit less active. They came from England. They were also two piece rubber balls, and it was just a matter of uh, uh, conditioning the rubber, the rubber amalgam, to uh, to be less bouncy than than what it might normally be. And now we're we're using uh, simulated gutta percha that um, um, uh, uh,
0: uh, um, Dave Brown is making for us in in Omaha. Right, and that ball is how would you describe hitting the actual gutta percha ball? A ball that's made of gutta percha.
1: It's um, it's like hitting a black walnut.
0: Okay, I I usually go with a which is which is
1: akin to being a rock. Okay, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. (laughs) and uh, yeah, you you'll feel it. You know, it's it's but uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's it's an acquired skill. You play enough of it, and you know exactly how it's going to feel. You know how far it's going to go. You know, you know what it's going to sound like, feel like. uh, You know what the flight characteristics are. It's um, you know, you learn all that stuff. And it's just a little bit different. And, you know, Oakhurst um, it was about 2,400 yards and uh, for for nine holes. So um, the good news is you don't have to walk as far, but you you probably take the same amount of strokes.
0: That's so true. Or more, right? Or, or more. more. or Yep, yeah, right. Depends on whether you're in the weeds or not. I tell people with, when you play gutty golf, I, first of all, I recommend it to everybody. And I know people kind of scoff at the idea, but there is a purity in playing that game. Uh, You do not hit the ball more than, definitely not more than 200 yards, but 180 yards, 150 to 180 yards. But the the course is also shorter and par is thrown out the door. So we're not talking about a par five. We're talking about a three shotter. And to you, it might be a four shotter. And I don't know. There's always something about that tournament. There's another level of golfer kinsmanship that go into the National Hickory Championship because... It's such a unique event. There's only four, like you mentioned, four or five of those tournaments in the world.
1: Right. One of the, one of the attributes that I like to tell people is that, and, and we're talking about hole number two at Oakhurst, and you remember
0: that, Connor? Oh, with the road, yeah. The, the record score that was shot on hole number two was 28 strokes. 28 strokes. So can you walk them through how 28 strokes was accomplished?
1: Well, you know, there's rough on both sides of the fairway. Uh, um, Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait. Pete, it's not rough. (laughs) uh, Let me describe, we we have to describe this for the listeners. So the fairway is basically like the first cut of rough at any club you've played. Right. The second cut of rough, or I'm sorry, the rough. Yeah, Yeah, and it's worse on a wet day. And the first cut of rough at Oakhurst is approximately how long would you say, Pete? Oh, four or five inches. Yeah. Yeah, and then just beyond that, it's like four feet deep. It's waist high. Yep. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's insane. And and so yeah, you know, using 19th century rules, um, un- unplayable lies, and and the lack of relief that you get on certain situations can can mo- balloon your score into two digits very very quickly.
0: So. At one time, and I don't think that was the rule. when we played. Did you did you ever play the National Hickory Championship where you had to finish with the largest part of your ball? If
1: it no broke? that 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 was Lewis's rule, and and <laughs> that that was never a rule in golf. Yeah, okay? yeah, uh, yeah. It was a, it was just you break a ball, it's a takeover, no penalty.
0: How about the unplayable rule? Was that in play at in at NHC? Well, yeah, we've actually used a couple different variations
1: of the unplayable rule. At at one point in about 1830, in Scotland, the unplayable rule was that you could challenge somebody that that declared their ball unplayable. And if you challenged them, you had three strokes to extricate that ball from the unplayable lie. And if you did it, those strokes were added to the original player's score. However, if after three strokes, you had not extricated that ball from the unplayable lie. Those strokes went on your score.
0: So good. We never had anybody challenge. But that rule wasn't in effect. It but was, that in rule fact.
1: was in effect. Was in effect in Scotland,
0: yes. And you used it for? Did you use it for the NHC?
1: We used it a couple of years, and like I said, oh, nobody, I nobody ever challenged.
0: Oh, that's so yeah. good though. The Pete. current,
1: the current rule is is that um, it's one club length, no closer to the hole two stroke penalty but you get to place your ball you don't drop it you place ah, it there you go and and I had the, uh, the 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 rules committee chairman of the USGA who researched that for me said it says you get to place your ball and mm-hmm. he says in my mind that means you basically can tee it
0: up on a tuft of grass absolutely right Well, you've already taken your penalty, right? Let's not make the game too Yeah, a lot of penalty. Yeah, two strokes. Oh, what I would have given to see somebody challenge and then have the competitor take three swipes of the ball and just barely move it like four inches in the wrong direction after that, and you're adding those three strokes? Oh, Sure. And only somebody that played the Oakhurst rough can appreciate that vision. Oh, it's brutal. I mean, I I once saw – I can't – I shouldn't name him. I'm not going to name him. We were playing Oakhurst. It was the last time at Oakhurst. (laughs) And – I had finished my round and I went out to, um, gosh, darn it. What hole is that? It's the hole where you come back to the clubhouse to the house, but then it's, it's like a one shotter over a swamp area. Is that, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's the little, the only
1: R three unquote, R3 hole. Yeah. The 12th, it's the third of the
0: 12th. Okay. So the, th- he was the third hole. So I had finished and yep. the afternoon round was going out. Yep. And, um, I was standing, you know, there's that tree. And then folks, just so we can we can spell this out for you, there's a teeing ground at Oakhurst. It was basically a sand or dirt, depending on how much it had rained. And uh, there is a bucket of water and a bucket of sand. So when you tee up your ball, you kind of dip your hand in the water, throw it on the sand, take a scoop of sand, put it on the dirt or sandy area and form a vertical ledge if you will. Is that fair, Pete? Vertical ledge. Yeah, we we call it like a little volcano. Yeah, little volcano. That's right. And then you put your ball on top of that tuft. And then basically you try to hit the ball before the sand dries out and the ball falls out. (laughs) And we were playing he gentleman was playing this one shotter and I was standing there with Andy Just, I remember this. And I'm standing right next to him and for some reason we were behind him and to the right. I just had this weird inkling. And I grabbed Andy by the collar and pulled him back. And the player somehow hit one of those magical shots where the ball goes backwards. Yeah. And it hit the sand bucket, flew up in the air and like landed right where Andy would have been. And I don't remember the number of strokes because at that point I was done. And I literally became uh, like a scorer because I had to know what this, I think his next shot was in the swamp. The next yep. one was in the swamp. The next one was like three shots in the weeds. And he kept shooting. And I believe he took an 18 on a one-shot hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, it can happen. And that that's the thing you tell people is that's not, you know, those stories are on almost every tournament, aren't they? At, at least at Oakhurst.
1: The first NHC that we had, I played that hole and I got a 12. Yeah. And I was really kind of down in the dumps at, at a 12 on a par three, except that the guy in the group behind me had a 15.
0: <laughs> It's, it's it's not uncommon. Not uncommon. Not yep. uncommon. I, I tell you, I, I'll, I'll share a couple of stories that I love. So this is, I don't, you remember, you remember the, the year my dad came out and caddied for me? Yep. And I hope my dad's listening to the story because I tell everybody the story because he's a mean person. But he's out there and Oakhurst is kind of hilly. It's kind of up on a hill and then it's down the flatland. And I wasn't playing it especially well. And about nine holes, he's like, you know, I think I'm done. And I'm like, What? And and mind you, Pete, what do the golf bags look like at uh, the National Hickory Championship? Well, we don't use bags. Exactly. So you're yeah. carrying as many clubs as you choose to take underneath yep. your arm. Yep. And my dad bails on me, and <laughs> I'm frustrated. But I start playing better, so I, I, I blame yep. him. And I come up to then the 18th, so it's a nine-hole course. You're playing it twice. And I don't – do you remember this story, Pete? I, I hit a really good drive. So I'm, like, right in front of the green, maybe, like, 30 40 yards and my dad comes up you know from the the chairs behind uh the the right, green from the gallery yeah, yeah. and and it, the green was a little bit of like a, a oh, I, I kind of remember it's kind of a turtle back right it has a little bit of a I don't know a, a fall off here but you also oh, yeah. remember it, it had some it had some break had some break and, and by the way everyone at home the greens are probably running of a stimp of what well
1: for a long time we we had um uh, light um Lina Sherrill, was uh, big in Tennessee Golf Association, bring his stimp meter out. Oh, I did not know that. And they were running
0: between three and four. A three on the stimp or a four yes. on the stimp? Yes. So, folks, I mean, you ups- you're getting upset at your country clubs when they're not reaching nine and ten, and the U.S. Open is 13, 14 sometimes. Yep. Three feet. That's th- three feet of roll. So w- another thing you tell people is a two-foot putt at Oakhurst is like a 10-foot putt on any other course. Yeah, you still have to hammer it. You have to hammer it. So anyway, we're, we're in the fairway here. My dad comes out, and he goes, he goes, you know what? There's no chance you're hitting that green. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, Dad, what the heck? And so I hit the ball, and it goes over the green. He's like, I told you so. And I pulled out $100 from my pocket. I threw it on the ground in front of everybody. I was like, I will give you $100 to take two shots and hit that green right now. You do yeah. it right. And he just, he walked off. And I think I was grounded for the rest of my life after that. Well, you, you, you know, you can be excused because the green is about the size of your thumbnail. Yes, it is. It is, is about the size of my desk. And you miss a lot of greens and you miss even more putts. Yep. And, and the worst part about that is that the
1: rough around the green was unbearable. And you'd be, you'd have a ball nestled in
0: six inch grass and you'd have to hit it eight feet and make it stop. And that was the thing. Do you remember that? I mean, you you get on specifically at Oakhurst, that grass was so thick and the the pin might be three feet off of the green or on the green. And you're just like, how can I swing that slow enough or fast enough to get it out of that lump of grass and on the green? Exactly. Unbearably tough. So you think here you're playing this 2000 some yard course and it eats men alive and women for the record. Women and men alive. So before we move on from Oakhurst, I thought maybe we could relive the toughest opening tee shot in golf. That's what I was told when I walked on Oakhurst. I think you literally came up to me and you said, <laughs> "Welcome to Oakhurst. You're about to play the toughest tee shot in the game of golf." Walk our vis- listeners through. It's a very short hole by modern standards. What makes then- number one? At, what made number one at Oakhurst so tough?
1: Well, it, 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 the toughest part is that you're playing with equipment that you just don't trust as much as you trust your titleists. And there was a shoot, especially in the early days, there was a shoot. You had to hit through trees on both sides with overhanging branches. There was the dreaded turtle pond where the big snapping turtle lived down in, For that would capture every topped ball that was hit off that tee. Or one that hit a tree, right? Or one that hit a tree there was uh, the waist high grass on the left there were trees on the right that would uh, put you in jail you might have a ball that landed on the gravel driveway oh, which yeah. was which was oh. no there was no relief given and and there was the uh, that that razor bunker down in front of the green and and all that but it was just it, you had to thread the needle and and you had to do it with the whole world watching you which is always a problem yeah and uh, and I can remember Randy Jensen who won that tour- tournament eight times, doing the walk of shame. Oh, really? Back to the tee, t- he had a lost ball and had to co- had to walk back uphill to the tee. But uh, the best the best shot that we ever saw there was we showed up one one day and it had rained the, the day before, and the the earthen tea- teeing ground, the earthen tee box, was really muddy.
0: Yeah. So I was we there for a, that one. Yes. Yeah,
1: you were there. That's right. And and we made a we made a, a quick field decision and we said you can drive you can tee your ball up anywhere to the side of the tee or mm-hmm. to the back of the tee. Yeah. And in the grass and uh, and Don Springman from Dayton teed it up behind. He hit a lofted shot, hit the overhanging branch and it wound up behind him. Oh, in the
0: bucket, in the bucket of water. Oh, what's the ruling on that, Czar? Hole in one. <laughs> <I> just one <laughs> and done.
1: Oh, yeah, it was, no. we got a good laugh out of that. But yeah, just you know that that moving that five feet back from the normal team. Oh, position I remember that. That was brought devastating. That, brought that
0: branch into play yes. and and it killed everybody that day. Well, and specifically on that tee box, if I and I have. Sp- Fairly good memory of this. You're, there really wasn't an option because of the slope of where the tee that's box right. was to play it on the left that's and the right. And that's so right. as you're playing, you know, we had this sandy tufty area, and within what one round, that was basically dirt.
1: Or oh yeah, mud by it, then. It had I been trodden we down and wet divots.
0: And, yeah, exactly. So, so you you brought up some of the champions, um, and you brought up um, a good friend of mine. We we all called him lovingly the Hickory Tiger Woods, Randy Jensen. That's right. Um, Perhaps you can kind of pontificate on some of the great champions of the NHC.
1: Well, uh, the good news is that, that um, we finally had a couple of guys that won more than one championship after Randy and uh, Mike Davis. uh, uh, Mike Stevens has won three. He's amazing. Bobby uh, Sly from, from Kingston, Ontario has won three. Um, Tom Johnson has been a champion. Andy just has been a champion. And uh, probably the the one that's worth mentioning right now is a guy named uh, Seth Lomason from winston-salem Seth came to us in I believe 2011 as a first T junior intern and uh, and and uh, yeah I played with him in his first round and I kept telling him course management Seth Don't just try and hit it for the green. (laughs) Keep it in the fairway. And, you know, after about 15 holes, he figured it out. But he has been to every NHC since his first. And I think that's now seven or eight, maybe even nine. I can't remember. And he has won the last two years and is absolutely unbeatable. And he's um, a lot lot like Willie McFarlane in that he's only about – five foot six and weighs about 125 pounds. But he is, he is a hickory master now and everybody is
0: scared to death to play with
1: with Seth because he is just so good.
0: And I'll tell you what distance is the one thing that does not matter in the NHC. I I remember I was paired up with Mike Stevens. Yep. Mike Stevens has, first of all, a beautiful swing, but it is the slowest golf swing you've ever seen. And He's a golf professional. That's it, right. It is the like it looks like me doing a practice swing in slow motion and yep. all he does is hit it straight. He might miss a green and he's up and down every single time. So I I'm playing with him and even with gutties I'm flying his ball by like 30 yards. And sure. I remember thinking, "Oh, I'm going to give this guy a tough time." And he beat me like 10 strokes. It might have been worse than that. I mean, just totally tick-tocked me all the way around the course and just drained every putt and he is just all of these folks that play in this, they're all just the greatest of gentlemen that's right, that's right,
1: so now me, one, yeah, go ahead, please one thing that we're doing, Connor that that you probably haven't heard of is that um coming up in twenty twenty we're we're having on foursomes day, we're having a nine hole competition with feather balls
0: oh. Now, Pete, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some contention at you here. <laughs> you remember? I know you remember this. One year, I asked you if I could play a feather ball in the tournament, yeah, with feathery clubs, and you turned me down like the czar.
1: Well, there, were, <laughs> there was there wasn't much point, you know. I yeah you know, I, I apologize, but no, I'm but, teasing. Uh, I'm teasing. But yeah, uh, we we got it. a guy that's that's making balls for us, and we had a couple of um. um test sessions, practice sessions and test sessions, uh, last
0: year. Did you do it too? Year, did you hit the, pardon me? did you hit the feathery? Oh yeah, definitely. What is that definitely. like? I've never hit a feathery. So what is that well, like? Well, I
1: teed it up and the best I could do is about 88 yards. Wow. And, and a, with a clique, I could do about 78 or, or so, but with a, with a wooden a wood headed club, um, about 88 yards. Now, my my head speed has slowed down quite a bit in the last few years, but but um, the longest hole that we're going to play is is the ninth at the mound, and it's two it's going to be it it's a four hundred and thirty yard hole. We're going to play it at two fifty, and the only reason we're playing it at two fifty is that the last hundred yards is almost all downhill. Oh yeah, and but we're going to be playing most holes at one hundred and fifty to two hundred yards.
0: Nice. I'm going to have to come. When when is the NHC this year? June 11 to 13, Dayton, Ohio. I'm putting it on my calendar. I've been talking about doing a podcast live from uh, events just like this. I thought that would be a really fun one to do. Oh, you'd love it. And and you'd get to meet Seth Lomason, too. I
1: mean, it sounds like a great young gentleman, right? He is. He really is. And and it's funny because um, the the year that he won, uh, which was – 2018. Um, uh, I, I, I took him out to dinner the night before and, uh, and we went to a, you know, typical sandwich type bar place and, uh, <clears throat> he couldn't order beer because he wasn't 21. Wow.
0: He's like okay. young Tom
1: Morris. Yeah, exactly. Tommy. And, uh, Yeah, and and we have another young lady that came to us through the first tee of Pittsburgh named Jillian Alexander, and she's been ladies champion three times. And when we were at the cricket club in Philadelphia uh, in 2017, we went out to a a, a bar down on uh, South Avenue around the, the Philly cheesesteak places, and we tried to get her in, and she wasn't 21, and we finally found another bar that let us in, as long as she didn't drink and allowed us to bring our cheesesteaks in, yeah. So, so we've got some some youngsters that are playing. We've got uh, Marcellus uh, Davis out of out of Greensboro, and he is uh, he came to us again through the first tee. All of a sudden, he's number one on his high school golf team, and and uh, and has not missed a Hickory Championship since he first played.
0: Now, we, we do have confirmation that he's not playing gutty every tournament in this on his high school team, correct?
1: That is correct, because <laughs> that but would be amazing. He does, he does take his wood shafters and, and show all the guys. Oh, I love and, it! And I love the wall, it. Walls on the range and that sort of thing. So.
0: so, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the venues, right? So we started off at Oakhurst Links, which. Yep. Am I Am I right? Is, Oklahoma, is Oakhurst Links no longer? No it 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 it's still there.
1: Um, it's owned by the Greenbrier now, mm-hmm. and the Greenbrier had that huge flood in 2016. And the course was damaged a little bit. It wasn't, wasn't badly damaged, not as bad as some yeah, of the, it's a little higher ground, I think, isn't it? Right. And, and, you know, the, the, the horses really took a lot of damage. And, um, uh, from a financial standpoint, they just, they, they're trying to recover from two bad years and they haven't had they haven't appropriated the money to get Oakhurst fixed back up, but <clears throat> I've talked to them and it's on the it's on the calendar. They're going to do it. Not sure when, but we will be back at Oakhurst at some point. Okay.
0: So people out there, you can't just go play it now, but in the future, we're no. planning on reopening. No, reopen. it's not open. It's not open. Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know that they're going to reopen, though. I mean, that's yes. I, I guess, you know how it is, Pete. You hear a lot of rumors out there that right. you know it's. Going to be home someday. And, you know, it's a tragedy, obviously. It um, is. What, I might mean, have two more questions really for you, and maybe three. Um, what are your favorite moments from the NHC over the years? Because this year, f- correct me if I'm wrong, it's the 20th NHC. Is that correct? 23rd. Or 23rd. My apologies. That's okay. Um,
1: you know, Connor, I don't know. Um, you know, almost every day, is there's a special moment at at every NHC. And, you know, somebody does something great or, or, you know, you meet somebody new or whatever. I think um, in hindsight, um, I, I love seeing the kids come out and play. We've had first tee kids for the last eight or nine years. And seeing kids embrace Hickory Golf and have fun doing it and actually play very well is really rewarding. Um, J.W. McMath from New Philadelphia, Ohio, shot an, an ace
0: at Oakhurst. Oh, I did not know the that. Only, the only ace we've had in NHC history. And why is that so, so hard? So because the flag stick is like five inches wide. Exactly, <laughs> and and uh, and so you know, all of a sudden,
1: his nickname is Ace.
0: I love it. And Ace. I did Ace not McRae. know that. That's right? Great. Yeah, and
1: and like you know, Rob allshweed has been Kilty ever since he and uh, Rick Fruzen wore kilts for the first time and played in the foursomes. And, and I nicknamed him Kilty, and he's still Kilty.
0: Yeah. Rick showed and, me a uh, little too much of his kilt once in a tournament. Well,
1: I, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's been some of that too. But, you know, and 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 I think really the part that I love the most, Connor, is that being the czar, I, I do the pairings, and and I get to pick who I play with both days. And that to me is the biggest treat because it's guys that I see maybe once a year and they're the guys that I love to go out with and play 18 holes and walk and talk and laugh and we don't care how we shoot but playing 18 holes with a good friend there's nothing better
0: that's fantastic um I don't even know how to go off of that. Let's say, it's, what, what, well, maybe for this, for, for most people, what what would you say for those people that are they're intrigued by this? What is the national hickory championship all about, and why do you think people attend from all around the world? And we did have three guys come from Sweden one year.
1: Um, it's you know it's the same thrill as. A person that is into vintage cars and wants to drive a Model A or a Model T around the neighborhood, or a civil war reenactor, it's you know you, you have the vision of history in your mind, and this gives you an opportunity to go out and and do it firsthand. And you know as as golfers, and especially those of us that are historians, and most of most collectors are historians in some way or another, um, it's understanding where the game came from. I mean, we all say, you know, if, if, if Oakhurst was really Oakhurst in the 1880s, how did the game ever become popular in America? I mean, it's, it's brutal. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a a reflection on where did the game come from? You know, how did, how did we get to where we are? And, uh, and what did those early guys see in it that made it so attractive?
0: You know, Pete, on that note, uh, how do, how do our listeners learn more about the National Hickory Championship and how they might be able to participate?
1: There is a website and it's, um, hickorychampionship.org, I think. Okay. Um, Matt Dodds is maintaining it for us.
0: I love Matt. Great guy, by the way
1: and uh and and you can google national hickory championship and you'll you'll find articles and and uh and that sort of thing out there um and and there's a way that you can contact me and and uh and i'll send you the packet i'll send you the entry packet we usually don't have those ready to go until january
0: i love it well there you go folks uh thank you so much pete for coming on the show um you know, this is Pete Georgity, the man who has done more, for my understanding, of the value of pre-1930 golf clubs than anyone I know, and the man who created one of the greatest and certainly the most unique golf tournaments in the world. Thank you so much, Pete, for coming on the show,
1: Connor. You're a good friend. I appreciate you having me on your show, and uh, I hope to see you out there at the at the national uh, in
0: uh, June 11th for the for the featherball outing. <laughs> yeah. When, now, um, where's where's it going to be held this year? Is it The Mound? The Mound. Perfect. Correct. All right. In, in Williamsburg, Ohio. All right. Thank you so much for joining me on the Talking Golf History Podcast, Pete. I really appreciate it. Hey, it was my pleasure, and uh, call me anytime. All right. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. And there you go, folks. That's our episode 23 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this journey. I love Pete Georgie. He's done more for the understanding of what golf clubs were out there and made over the years of the the hickory era going all the way back to the feathery than anybody I know. And like I said, he invented or founded the greatest golf tournament that I know of. Thank you so much for listening.